My name is William Chernoff, and today on the Rhythm Changes podcast, I spoke to Chris Blaber. Chris plays in the performing arts ensemble Scrap Arts Music. He's also done a solo tour of house concerts in British Columbia for three months by bike. We'll talk about that at the end. We start by talking about how our paths have crossed at folk festivals while he played percussion with the group Balkan Schmalkan. Chris has one of the best laughs ever. You'll hear it very soon. And I just met him in this conversation, so I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. So I wanted to start with an area where I know for sure we have common ground. And this will flash back a couple years now. But tell me about your experience at the 2018 Woodstove Festival. So where's the Woodstove Festival? I only did the Woodstove Festival in 2019. Oh, okay. Great. Yeah, so, no, it's in Courtney Comox area, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I uh I was in a weird house <laughs> which was kind of cool. Um I blah, blah. we the parade down the street in the middle of the I get a lot of things mixed up about the festivals that go on. Um, but yeah, I remember a parade walking in towards each other on the street, and that was a lot of fun. <laughs> and there was a, like, local group that we came and had a weird mashup that didn't actually work. It was just, like, a massive noise, but people were like, hey, wah! Um, yeah. I remember when my band went there the year before that in 2018, we also stayed at somebody's house and they weren't there, but they opened it up for multiple visiting artists to sleep over in that house. It was phenomenal. Awesome. What's, uh, yeah, I mean, what's, what's your, do you talk about drug use at all in this thing or is that a taboo topic? No, you're welcome to go for it. Oh yeah. Well, I got stuck in the house because I accidentally ate too much, too many mushrooms, <laughs> and just like then I was stuck in the couch, and I had to. I told my friend like I'm going to the bathroom. Let me like just if I'm not back soon, like within a couple minutes, like maybe check, you know, <laughs> like you know, see see what's up. I want to be back in this couch, not stuck in a strange bathroom. So, uh, but like, yeah, that was a thing. And, uh, we found out that dogs don't like large people with large instruments, especially when the large instrument turns and all of a sudden looks larger like a berry saxophone which like straight on is like just a line and then it turns and it's like a five foot wall of steel on like being worn by somebody like mike wt allen or ashton sweet who's like six six how tall is that person i don't know i feel like a short person around them and i'm not short <laughs> well, I don't know how tall you are, so I'll have to take your word for it. But Balkan Schmalkan is a group I've seen a whole bunch at different folk festivals in BC. So can you walk me through the time that you spent with them? Because I'm actually not too familiar with what it feels like to be part of that group. And I've always been uh, in awe of how much they get around. Uh, Yeah, I mean, in terms of the group, it's a combination of community type members and professional musicians so at least uh, the main core of the group is people that gig regularly like most of their lives come from playing or gigging places so right now that's me sweet mike i mean not right now because pandemic but like you know or people that have like gone through a whole bunch of training and then now they're doing it as like a community thing. So they like had degrees in music, but now they're a fundraiser for some big corporate thing or whatever. Um, so it's a really interesting group of people. And it's kind of like a side thing for everybody to do for fun. And like, 
it do you know much about balkan music i only know a little bit because one of my best friends is a guy named steve clements who's been associated with them a little bit and he started some other balkan groups one of them was called malagrupa and he's associated with this other musician named nikola tosic and i've learned from him the only thing that i know which is very little so i'd love to hear more about what you've learned about balkan music what do you know I know that there are some odd time signatures associated with that folk music and that it is a groove-based thing that features a lot of improvisation, similar to some styles of jazz and American folk music, I guess. But other than that, and other than the kind of harmonic sound that I associate with it, I really don't know anything about how to play it or how to approach being in a group like that. Yeah, so... Uh, where do you start? Like, Balkan music is, it's dance music. And it's, so in the West, we generally perceive things with even beat structures as dance music, because that's most of the stuff we hear. So, like, everything with a consistent 4-4, whatever. But in the Balkans, or in that style of music and culture, it's based in, like, groups of twos and threes that are steps and skips or like steps and jumps and jumps take slightly more time than a step so if you've got a step skip step skip step skip step skip one two three four five 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 step skip step skip to skip step 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 so you have to realize that it comes from that and it comes from the dances and how that feels and how that like rotational movement works in terms of uh, approaching the rhythm, and then the melodies and stuff. I mean, generally, you're looking at strong tonal-esque melodies. And then, um, in terms of Balkan brass music, that has to do with... I mean, the entire region is just like a giant smorgasbord of unrest for, like, generations. So... Like, the Balkan brass band stuff comes from uh, the Ottoman Empire. <laughs> and there's, like, a tradition of brass bands that had that. And then a bunch of the repertoire comes from stuff, like, post-World War One and Two. So there's songs like Mountains of Madness, which is, like, you you've... Uh, a lot of these dances are traditional, like, Jewish dances, horas, and which I believe, uh, I'm not gonna guess on what something means, but, uh, like a, you'd, you'd have a Pravo Hora, whatever, and that'd be the title of the thing, and it's like a dance of this, you know, you've got a traditional dance from every single city and location for every culture, or like, place and community i don't know <laughs> who were some of the people or the places where you started to learn more about this stuff so i didn't really go down the rabbit hole until after i was in balkan schmalkin so really i'd just go to the tunes that we were learning so um yovano yovanke there's nevestizo Kolo Nevestitsko. I don't know how that's actually spelt. The spelling of in the Balkans is totally different, but um, and how you pronounce those spellings is also totally different. Uh, but it's a place, and that's a kolo, which is a type of song or style of song that is from that place. Uh, so then I'd go look up that place and look up what kind of music or people came from there uh, and then kind of go through that with each tune and find out like, oh, okay, like this group played it this way here and this group played it this way from there, but like this one's from the States, so I'm not going to think of that as from the uh, like regional style or whatever. Is dance the thing that makes complex odd time music work for all listeners and what makes it fun for people who don't have that specific knowledge 
Uh, I think that's what makes it fun in Balkan Schmalkin. <laughs> and I would, I think that the choreography in Scrap Art's music does the same sort of thing. But a lot of the times our choreography is in like straight quarter notes. Um, and then our hands are going off in other lands. Or we're like just jumping with the phrases. I thought that scrap arts was a really cool thing in your CV to date, and I was wondering what background you could give about your time there, what you've learned from it, and how unique of a performing arts organization this thing is. Um, I mean, scrap arts happened because I did the ecstatic waves thing, and through the networking that happened because I met so many people doing that, I met somebody that was retiring from the group. And they were essentially rehauling the entire ensemble um, and making an entire new show. So they were auditioning an entire new band. And this is uh, June. Like, I had just finished my last courses at SFU in December. Uh, so we're talking like spring 2017. I auditioned. I ended up getting in probably because the person referred me. And then we did like six months straight of 20 hours a week rehearsals paid in Victoria. I moved to Victoria to do that. And we learned uh, like the entire show and then went on tour and then changed stuff about it. Uh, I mean that those six months themselves like i became a new performer like there's a new level of confidence you don't do that anywhere else like a gig here in vancouver you're looking at like four rehearsals and then a show like uh like you're hired by a singer songwriter person you've got a couple rehearsals to learn like a two-hour set you this is like a full-on production okay after this piece this piece of gear has to go into this wing and you go to this wing and you go to this wing and then we grab these pieces of gear and then we come out and we put it together and that's this thing and then while that's happening somebody's playing like something and by the time they're done four phrases we've got to be out with the big drums and we're ready to go you've got like you've got a choreograph the changes between different sets different combinations of instruments there's not enough room in wings to have everything set up so like some things are semi torn apart some things aren't semi torn apart and then you gotta jump (laughs) (laughs) and that suits what the music is so well too because the music is all about this spontaneous vibe and about creating new novel things in and of itself as an artistic end. So the the actual process of putting it together on stage sounds a lot like the product as well. Oh, well, it's all Gregory Kozak and his wife, Justine Murdy, in terms of, like, the show. Like, we're... We contribute and we, like, say, like, I can't play that or, like, Uh, he uses the skills that we have. (laughs) Like, okay, you can deliver this sort of thing really well in this context or on this thing because, like, I've spent so many years training in whatever the heck I've been training in and other people have done their thing. Which, also interesting, because when I was... When we started, it was me, Masako, Hockey, Kristen Clare, uh... Alex Campbell and Greg Kozak playing. And me, I'm like a academic composer person that studied percussion on the side. Masako Hockey is like a pipe band award winner Japanese percussionist. Like, and she ended up in Victoria because, uh, she connected with somebody who's bringing like funeral and cremation technologies to japan because there's there's obviously uh it's a small island and they've got a lot more people so you need to deal with your dead 
in certain ways and in ways that are respectful of the culture and stuff. But that's entirely aside. Kristen Clare is like a crazy LA-based percussionist. She has her own like singer-songwriter marimba thing going on. She runs this crazy uh thing called the Den, which she she like produces giant festivals and stuff. Um and plays with orchestras and recording sessions in LA. Uh, and then Alex is like the most gigging drum set player I've met. And Greg Kozak, I don't even understand. He's, uh, he's also like 63. Or six, uh, six. He's gonna be 70 soon. He always says a different number when we ask what age he is. So what, what makes a good producer or artistic director based on what you've seen from him and from Scrap Arts or any other project? Oh, I mean, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, there are things in everything that are, you know, good and bad. But, like, in terms of a good artistic director or producer, um, it depends on context. Like, uh, I, in scrap arts, I think Greg is good at maintaining his and our interest. Um, cause we are working on like the same set of music for what, like three, four years now and developing in it, it and changing it. But like, because they have their own independent control, uh, of the, show like he can do that um and i don't know uh because they've they have they had been approached by like very large companies in the past and they have maintained their like independent control of the ensemble which i think is cool uh, but then with like breathing bass, it's like an entirely improvised scenario. Like we, the notation we write is just like suggestions to ourselves for like the kinds of thing we might do in a situation. And Kurash Gamsari Esfahani is really good at managing that situation and trying to take everybody's, um, like everybody's individual personality as a player and how that can be contributed to the ensemble whereas in scrap arts greg is looking at our skills and that how and how that can contribute to what he's trying to build which you know is a different context and you're building something different but both are valid right yeah i wanted to come back to two things that you've mentioned so far that are definitely at the core of what you're up to right now one of them would be ecstatic waves but the other one is your background studying composition because most listeners won't know what that's like. What was it like for you to study composition at SFU? Oh, yeah. Composition at SFU. SFU, I didn't want to go there at first. Uh, so I had, I went to Douglas College. I had really bad grades in high school. Like, um, so I went to college cause I didn't get into the places I wanted to. And then I dropped out of college cause my grandma died. And then I went back again to Douglas and did their UT program. Um, and then when I was done there, I applied to UBC and UVic and SFU and I didn't get into UBC or UVic. So I went to SFU, um, also because, uh, my father's a professor there, so I get free tuition, which is very, very helpful uh, in terms of money and stuff. Um, yes. And what was I saying? Oh, yeah, SFU. So SFU was good for me because they... It's not a conservatory. There's no performance. You... If you go to SFU, they're not going to, like, tell you to play paradiddles. Like, the amount of music theory that I took there, like, 
it it was only inside a compositional context and i took like two courses over my four years that were actually dedicated to theory um that being said while i was at sfu within the opportunities that were available there i sound designed and composed and played live in eight different dance productions with choreographers I made like visual art and sound installations with visual art people. I had, I, um, the musical theater shows that I wrote are through partnerships between SFU and the Burnaby Arts Council. So I got to do 12 weeks straight of paid work, six weeks making the musical, and then six weeks touring and performing it and i did that two years in a row and we were also supposed to do like the booking and production management stuff which is where my knowledge in that realm came from because it's like okay we like made this thing for a show and now we've got to book it and nobody else is willing to do the paperwork i'll do the paperwork so then I just started booking my own shows. I was like, oh, all you got to do is contact people and tell them you cost this much? Wow. Uh, I'll contact all the people. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, and I got to... I did a reenactment of Bluebeard's Castle, which is an opera by Bartok, uh, Bella Bartok, um... Obviously, the music was nothing like Bartok's. Like, no quotes, no nothing. Totally different. It was a setting of, like, um, two men as the lead roles. Uh, and then, yeah. That's, that's that. That's SFU. So it seems like there's another important thing that you get when you're learning to be a professional artist, which is, like, how to notice and fill the gaps like the things that people don't like doing or don't know how to do yet and yeah. maybe you don't know how to do them either but you see that as a green light somebody's gotta do it i heard about a epic snare drum solo that got you accepted into douglas college when you were a teenager would you tell that story uh where'd you hear this story <laughs> Oh, it's got, like, backsticking and stuff. Yeah, so, um, part of my, like, coping mechanisms is I practice a lot. So, like, after, uh, you know, the grandma dying thing, I made out, like, a year-long plan of practicing to get my hands faster and part of that was, like, a couple snare drum solos, and basically I set them at three different tempos that I would work them at every day, and then I had a regimen of, like, a certain number of pages of stick control, which is a George Lawrence Stone book of just patterns that get crazy and hard so that you can do whatever hand patterns you want. And I'd organize that book so I could finish it, in a month and so i'd bump the tempo up every month for that book and then with the three solos i was bumping all the three ranges of tempo up each day and uh i did that for quite a while <laughs> and then you know you do anything like that and you're gonna see some sort of result um I'm going to say I have lots of opinions about the way I played back then, but, like, I could play snare drum fast. <laughs> Did you know what time I was in? No. <laughs> Did it groove? No. But it was fast! <laughs> uh, and we all know lots of music out there in the world that's like that, so it's not just you. No worries. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> so... Ecstatic Waves, start from the beginning because this is one of the more personal projects for you, one of the ones where you are really in the driver's seat and it's it's about your vision. What is Ecstatic Waves and what's your vision for it? Okay, um, Ecstatic Waves is 
what is ecstatic waves ecstatic waves has essentially been like my way of presenting work that i think should be presented um regardless of um whether it will be enjoyed or like like it it might not be pleasant but it will provide an emotional experience that maybe needs to happen um so we like so if somebody wants if we bring in a composer that wants to do something we're not there to tell them no we're there to say okay how can we explore this how can we present this what's a way that we can feasibly do it within the like project time scale that we have so the first project that i well like made us take on is i wanted to make an open inst a book of open instrumentation music and i wanted to raise enough money to publish the book and give it to everybody that took part in the project. So I started, and the reason that started is because at SFU I took a course <clears throat> uh, with somebody who runs a magazine. Uh, it's not called the Discorder. It's sounds similar, but it's not that. It's like a visual art magazine. They've got... Um, a bunch of like lots of interesting work. David Knight Cowling does a sound blog on it, so you might know that reference. Um, or he did a long time ago. Um, ecstatic waves. Sorry, I got sidetracked because there's lots of things. Um, yeah. So basically, from. January 2017 until June 2018, that was our project. Uh, we presented like 13 concerts, over 60 new pieces of music by composers and people from around Vancouver. Um, and then at the final concert, we did a eight hour event that started out with small ensemble pieces from the book. And then we got the 16-channel speaker system called the Array from the Redshift Music Society, and we played some works that people had made for that. And then it was large ensemble stuff, so we're talking, like, and kind of semi-ridiculous large ensemble stuff. So when we were playing the piece by Nadia Shibley, we had, like, two drum sets, piano, three percussion, guitar, bass cello one cello that's the only string instrument just a cello but like just a battery of sound and yeah it was awesome um another thing that also is kind of well i mean it's part of the ecstatic wave story for me the day before that show my uncle died and so the yeah that sort of is why not a lot has happened since then uh, attached to that and then we did a halloween show in the fall and my best friend died the a couple weeks before that uh of a drug overdose like related to the fentanyl stuff that's going on so that also affected things and i was I had a plan to do, like, a cross-Canada bike tour for summer 2019, and I just couldn't put together that sort of production in that state. So it ended up being just BC, uh, and I almost broke even <laughs> in terms of money for that one. So I didn't, like, go into debt, but uh, it was a difficult summer, but it was also awesome. And that was kind of the last thing Ecstatic Waves has done. And it was amazing to work with Jaya Story, Erica Regeer, and Nadia Shibley to make the music for that. Yeah, I definitely want to ask about the bike tour later. 
Um, but first, yeah, I'm sorry for all those losses that you've had. And if there's anything else that connects, you know, the the kind of the the tumultuous experiences like that, or or the grieving and connect, and if it connects to your art, you're welcome to share that too. And if not, that's also cool. Well, I sort of touched on it before, but it's uh, like it, it's it's where I it's where I have control. It's where I can sit, and it's about like I'm attempting to do something. I'm create like even if I'm just practicing now, like I'm never I don't practice to do anything fast. I practice things because I want to be able to perform them. I practice things because I want my worst to get better. Like if I walk in and feel like total garbage, I should still be able to deliver something that affects people in the way that the music is supposed to affect them or that I'm a trying to, you know? And, um, yeah, it's like uh, dissociating into your practice. I don't know. That's the whole thing. Is that self-improvement and practice aspect and your regime, is it about proving something to yourself about what you're capable of? Is it a response to something external or is it something else entirely on the motivation side? Uh, it makes, makes me feel good. I mean, I've been doing it for so long now. It seems like things like that, they work best maybe and they feel the best for you when the most satisfaction comes from the continuous process of doing it rather than trying to reach something that's far away, like a goal? Uh, well, I'll add another layer to it. All of my... or I attempt to holistically think about my like practice... In terms of, I, I guess we're now going into general like practice philosophy in terms of being a musician stuff. Um, but uh, I now understand the way, or I have a better understanding of what training means and what practice means and how that relates to learning. Um, and how that re relates to learning a physical skill. Uh, so, yeah, my dad's a kinesiologist, um, so he has a very specific knowledge of the human body uh, that we just had books and stuff lying around, and because of my cycling and uh, athletic interest, uh, I have gone in and looked at some of this stuff. Like, obviously, I'm no expert. I studied music composition. But you, musicians don't understand what recovery is. Musicians don't understand the concept of rest. You, like, if you're looking at studies of high-performance athletes doing high-performance, like, endurance things, uh, they must have a rest period or they will be overtrained and they will suffer they will have injuries yeah like your level of hormones goes down if you stay in a continuous period of activity and then once you go to rest your levels of t testosterone and hematocrit and some other things don't quote me on the exact things but they go back up to normal levels because you're going from a stressed state to a normal state and this has to happen in like a yearly cycle so like um as a musician that needs to like wiggle your fingers or drum and in my case also like jump and commute as a cyclist i need periods of time with minimal activity so that I can like continue doing this into my old age and you need to I think people need to apply that that's why you have vacation time at work that's why you have other things 
And you need to apply that at like the weekly, the monthly, and the annual scale. This is a whole other ball of worms that I have opinions on. <laughs> no, let's stay here. There's some really valuable stuff in here. Uh, there's a few things I want to linger on, but the first one is just revisit, if you can, those periods of time, because you mentioned something to do with annual, but then you also mentioned periods of rest. So what are the, the time frames here that musicians need to know or take from the correct athletic process you just talked about? Well, uh, you need to be okay with spending two weeks, at least two weeks to a month, like, not playing every year. Like, straight up, like, in like, not, you can play a little bit, but don't do any structured, like, scales or fast things for, like, a full month every year. Just, like, no structured practice, only, like, work over some, like, chord diagrams or, like, play over changes or something. You're not doing anything structured or trying to do anything, like, learning any crazy new music. I know it's hard with, like, a musician's schedule, but this that's why it's a vacation or, like, you know, whatever it is you need to do for that. And musicians don't put that into your, their schedule. It's not just about physical rest. It's about mental rest, too. Yeah, totally. You, Your brain can't stay on all the time. And if you go away from your instrument for a couple weeks, you're going to come back and really want to play. Like, I like, I kind of think about my cycle tours that way. Because uh, I'll... Up until the bicycle tour recently, I would bike somewhere for like two to four weeks every year. And I wouldn't bring an instrument. I'd bring like a notepad. I might have some sticks and a practice pad. And I'd like work out some ideas that I have or like hit some sticks or hit some logs and rocks I find that sound cool. But like I'm not really playing or working hard on any technical aspect of anything. So there's this annual cadence and this vacation part of that cadence, but does it zoom in and are there similar things that apply to how we should manage our days or weeks with the same goal of understanding recovery better? Okay, so on a smaller time scale, you need to realize that what if you're trying to play faster or learn a specific combination of moves, yeah, if you're developing changes in your muscles, what you're attempting to do through your practice is induce uh, physical adaptations that you don't, like, actually need. So you need to spend enough time with these movements and ways of playing that becomes into your muscle memory um and then if you're trying to do something faster so this sort of gets outside of practicing specifically like for musicality so i'll get like a little it's gonna get a little i don't know sports sciencey maybe um but it it, it applies because you're practicing you're trying to induce changes, induce training adaptations in your body to develop the skills you want to acquire. And so you need to um, do those movements so that your body will learn and remember that pattern of movements. You should, if you want to learn something faster, attempt to uh, feel and be aware of your body throughout the entire movement and what that requires is doing it extremely slow and if you do something extremely slow you're going to be aware of the entire movement all the way through and you're going to more quickly develop the the like neuron connections like your brain is sending signals to neurons through and that connects through 
and literally through your daily practice, you are developing stronger myelin sheaths for your neurons to communicate faster specifically to those parts of your body. And you become more aware of it. And then it's a lot easier to go faster if you've done it a lot slower. So there's one thing to think about. And then in terms of rest and recovery, if you spend a lot of time doing this sort of motion, as a professional musician, you're essentially walking the line of repetitive stress injuries. Uh, it doesn't matter which instrument you're doing. You're pr practicing a specific movement repetitively over and over again. Um, so how do you resolve that? Well, you need to listen to your body. Uh, you, so, uh, the difference, I'm going to get into something talking about the way your muscles act during exercise. So you've got ana, uh, aerobic and anaerobic exercise. Aerobic and exercise is when you are moving and you can still like breathe and talk. You've at generally at a lower heart heart rate you're talking about like cardio that sort of stuff anaerobic is when you're exerting so much that you can no longer uh work with just you know oxygen so then that's when your muscles will start cramping and feeling tired and fatigued and start to hurt so if you're practicing until fatigue so you're doing an endurance thing because you're never lifting weights while you're playing your instrument. You're doing an endurance activity by practicing for like four hours long or whatever your crazy thing you're doing. Like if you do that to fatigue every single day, you're going to hurt yourself. You can't do it to fatigue every day. And if you do it to fatigue, you the next day don't. Or don't play a bunch of crazy exercises if you played until you were really tired. Like, you need to leave that period of rest. And, uh, yeah, alcohol does not help you, uh, recover. If you drink alcohol, your recovery is impaired. So, uh, there you go. <laughs> That's in the literature. Look up the science. <laughs> So there's so much in common between a musician from the technical perspective and athlete from the information that you just outlined. But where does it start to diverge? Where is it no longer useful to continue to compare musician to athlete? Um, I think, well, because in an athlete, the idea is to become like the fastest the idea is to become like the person who can jump the highest, who can shot put the furthest, who can run the longest without sleeping, if you look like at super crazy ultra endurance stuff. And in music, what you're trying to do is provide an emotional experience um, and convey the emotional experience of the music that you're creating. And there are kinds of music that require physical skills that you need to sit and develop and that's okay that's totally fine um but it then needs to be like if that's the only thing you do is like crazy speed metal sure like you can do that and you're gonna have to take this stuff into consideration because this is how the human body works um and if you're not doing that and you still want to be able to do some fast things like you're gonna to have to develop the skills but and you might uh so the other thing that i think about like other than scrap arts music i don't have to use really heavy sticks like they use basically take your regular stick and quadruple the thickness it's literal maple dowels from, like, furniture for, like, putting on your ch the chair back, you know? And we've cut them, and he's just spray-painted them. They're maple doweling. So they're really heavy. 
Like, so over this month, I'm essentially weight training to so that I can go there and we're going to go straight into a month of rehearsing and playing from March 20th until April 20th for a live stream show at the Port Theater. And I'm going to hurt myself if I don't get my body ready. Like, I've been semi-sedentary for, like, almost a year now. Like, and I'm going to have to go there and jump every day and play with these heavy sticks at that kind of tempo every day. So I'm, like, in my practice, like, I'm just doing some uh, slow playing at moderate tempos, playing along to tracks with those heavy sticks. And then once I get tired, I put those sticks away and I go to lighter sticks and I use those. And then once I start getting tired, I put that away and I go to even lighter sticks. And then um, I, d I only do that maybe like once or twice a week. Uh, oh, here's a secondary thing. Um, in terms of if you're talking about endurance performance, uh, to so I've already developed uh, skills and abilities. So now I need to in in induce a training scenario where I redevelop those. Um, so I have to provide a training stimulus great enough to uh, induce those adaptations. So, but I don't want to hurt myself, and I don't want to make it so I can't play every day. So, um, if you look at, like, weight training and stuff for endurance athletes, uh, it's generally suggested to never do more than two uh, high-intensity days per week in, like, a five-day training week. So, if I'm talking about training my forearms to be able to use heavy sticks all day every day then what you want to get in is large volumes of low intensity training uh so like low volume playing and then maybe once or twice a week like one session i will do some fast stuff with the heavy sticks until fatigue and always that's preceded by a rest period and followed by a rest day because you want to be the most ready for those training for that training stimulus. So you should eat, you should have drank your water. <laughs> you know. When I was looking at your work on your websites online, the word that I thought summed up most of what I talked about was duration, and it's a word you've used a couple times to describe what you're doing and it seems like that word really kind of brings together the idea of the artistic presence and the delivery of an emotional experience, but also like the responsibilities and the preparation of an athlete. Is that kind of on track with how you were thinking when you use the word? Yeah, duration I is important to me. I would agree with that statement, definitely. Uh, and in terms of my, like the music that I make, I make duration is also very important and it's also important in terms of a uh performance thing as well and I think that all it also ties into my love of cycling because I I like like getting on something and like going all day and uh Cycling and music are, like, the two times that I can achieve, like, s extreme levels of euphoria just through, like, existing and doing something. Like, I just, like, do this thing and I can achieve, like, I I crazy states of euphoria. I do it doesn't even make any sense. Um, and it either happens through, like, Having a crazy sense of audience energy, uh, which I played at the 50th year opening of the Canucks home game. And, like, we did, like, a one-minute drum feature. 
like, during the thing, and is like, it had changed ten times before we went out, and we go out, and, like, you hit everything for, like, the two seconds. You have no memory of anything, but you're just so, like, high in your mind, like, somewhere, like, because, like, it, you can't even comprehend, you can't comprehend that number of people. Um, but that's also achievable just by yourself, like, at, after, like, four hours of not even understanding what you've been doing, and then something happens, and, like, you know, it's a sense of euphoria. Most musicians, I think, have, like, felt this, and it's part of, you know, you want that connection with a group of people. And doing that with an ensemble makes it even more intense. Um, and if you're all able to be together like that. Uh, and that requires time with the ensemble. So it's happened a couple times with Scrap uh, now when we get to play together a lot. Um, and it also happens while cycling. And there's a thing with the endurance cycling stuff where like you actually you your body goes into states of crazy amounts of hormones because of the amount of endurance you're doing and i remember like visual stimuli like i watched a sunset and i like literally couldn't stop crying and it's just because like i was going through crazy hormone stuff because i had this was right after the the bike tour carrying all the all the stuff. But yeah. The last bucket of uh conversation that I definitely need to hit here is this bike tour because this is just phenomenal uh and I really want to know the whole story. So uh we've alluded to it several times, but take us through the whole walk through that experience and how it how it came together, what it entailed. And what you what you've learned from it since? Okay, so starting in the fall of 2018, I decided I was gonna cycle at least around British Columbia, hopefully across Canada, carrying all the gear that I needed to perform um, and survive. So we had to work out the logistics of like what sort of bike could I use? What sort of stuff could I carry? How much stuff could I carry? What's physically possible? Uh, and then you also have to book the shows. So I made, I searched up every art gallery and music space and concert hall in along all the possible routes. And then I sent emails. I talked to people I had worked with in Ecstatic Waves. Uh, so that's Jaya Story, Nadia, Nadia Shibley and Eric Regere, and they were down with the project. And so they wrote music... Uh, yeah, they wrote music for stereo electronics and uh, a drum set that's fairly s small, so just kick, snare, hi-hat, uh, and one ride that's on, like, an attachment on the, on the drum. Uh, on the bass drum. Yes. And then... Uh, I mean, I did the whole booking process myself. I emailed everybody. I dealt with contracts and technical forms. I organized my schedule so that I'd have time to learn the music. I gave myself like a couple weeks production schedule. And the way that I booked and organized the shows, I wanted to have at, I wanted to be able to bike approximately 50 kilometers a day, five days a week. I wasn't going to push for more than that. If you talk to like a professional cyclist or like somebody who does cycle touring, they they're pushing 100 kilometers a day at least. Um and if I wasn't carrying that sort of weight, I would be doing in the like 8 to 80 to 140 kilometers a day depending on terrain. Um and then so and then I actually then it's bike tour time. And I wasn't done the bike yet. I was building a trailer and it was like not working. Uh, the first thing that I left with, it was probably like over 200 pounds. Uh, and I left on June 8th and I made it to 
Whistler, and that bike broke. Uh, so the trailer, the wheels collapsed in. It was too heavy. My axles weren't strong enough. Um, the first day that I was out there, I had a guy tell me that I wasn't going to be able to do it and that, like, uh, I should just give up, like, go home. And I was like, I, I, I like, called my wife, uh, oh, yeah, my wife, and, like, crying because, like, I, I, I could see it happening, but, like, I couldn't. Like, I, I still had to do it. And so, like, I, I'm carrying this ridiculous thing. The wheels have collapsed. They're rubbing against the trailer. And I'm, like, biking up the sea to sky. And I get to Whistler. Uh, almost to Whistler. And then I get picked. Uh, and then the wheel actually, like, pops off. And it's, like, on its side. On the side of the sea to sky. And then this guy, Bruce. Named, yeah, his name's Bruce. And he's, like, a ex- he used to run the like Canadian Alpine Alpine ski team, and he like cycles for fun because he's a cyclist. And he like <laughs> he picks me up and he's just like reaming me out. He's like, "What the hell are you doing?" Blah 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 blah. But he like I can totally tell that he thinks it's badass. <laughs> that I'm like, like you fucking made it here with like this thing. What the hell are you doing? And then he was, uh, yeah. Uh, anyways, basically. I had to, like, I called for a ride, uh, my parents have, like, a minivan, so I was able to access their resources, which is not somebody, something everybody has, um, and they brought me back home, and it was actually really nice, because I got to go to Joel's, um, wedding, uh, like, party, not the wedding, but the party thing, which... I had felt bad about not making, but then, like, this bike tour thing got screwed up, so I came back, and I was able to go to that. I rested, I, like, slept for two days, and I found this awesome deal on a bike that's, like, a cargo bike rated for 150 pounds, for 200 pounds of of gear for, like, 500 bucks, and I was like, oh, damn, I'm buying this bike right now, and so we went and bought the bike, and I installed, like, a little table thing on it, and I bought a tarp, and put everything on it, and then I got a ride up to where I would have been in the bike tour as of the day, so I, I had four days off. And in those four days, like, the first three days had felt like just total torture all the way to Whistler. And then I got dropped off in Ashcroft, and my first day was what's called the Ashcroft Hell Climb. And it was a breeze. Like, it wasn't that hard. I just went slow. I had this, like, new... Well, it's a new-to-me bike, but it's it was just, like, dialed in. It was the right gear for the job. I had no problems the rest of the tour. Like, I mean, I had some problems, but it wasn't because of the bike. <clears throat> and, yeah, I'd, I went through... Kel Kamloops, Kelowna, Lake Country. I went down to Princeton. I rode, uh, there's a hill in Kelowna up to the, um, railroad trestles. And it's like seven and a half kilometers and like 14% grade the entire time. And I met this, uh, cyclist from brazil who competes she competed in brazil and she competed was starting to compete here and she was just like what the hell are you doing this is just like a gravel road i can't convince my pro cycling friends to come up this hill with me and you're doing it with what and i'm like <laughs> and then i i was struggling on that one because you have to like get up to the hill and then you're on to this like dirt path and I, yeah, um, but then she showed up and we like talked and whatever, and we made it to the top of the hill, and that was probably the most difficult hill I did. I did. Yeah, I mean the Coquihalla is long, but at least it wasn't that steep. So what did it feel like when you hit the top of that hill versus what did it feel like when you needed help on the sea to sky? Uh. Well, one's an accomplishment, and one's just like, like, uh, I don't know. 
Like, on the Sea to Sky, I had... I was sweating so much that I couldn't... Like, it was just dripping into my eyes. <laughs> and I got... <laughs> and stuff. So, but because the way the bike was, I couldn't really bring my hands up. So, like... I had to keep the balance. It was it was not a good situation. It didn't feel good to ride. Like it was wobbly. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, like well, totally different. <laughs> One's an accomplishment, and one just like I felt like I suffered. <laughs> What's the view that comes first to your mind when you look back on that whole experience of being out there in all these different places for months doing that? Uh, the best view that I remember was coming out of the Kelowna Railroad trestles and heading west. Yeah, I believe it's heading west. Yeah. So you head up to the Railroad trestles in Kelowna and you head west. You can keep following those. It turns into... Uh, well, it's a railroad trestle, so it's it just keeps going. They built railroads. Um, and there were fires recently. And there's... I had looked up, like, the routes and the reviews online. And they're like, don't even bother going this way. Like, you can't see anything. There's just, like, tall trees all the way across. But because of the fires, like, all of those trees had been destroyed. And there was just, like, this massive view across the lakes of, um, I don't remember which lakes they were. There were so many. But, and you could see the new growth, like, coming up and, like, covering up just, like, the beach. But you, like, you could tell that within, like, ten years that view is going to be gone again. And that's kind of one thing that I thought was neat. That was, and it's cool because it's situational. Like, it's only really going to happen anytime there's a forest fire in the area and it singes that spot. Which is also really unfortunate for Kelowna because, you know, it's, fires are keep on encroaching closer and closer. And that was, that's, uh, fires in BC is, what Erica was writing her piece about. So uh, it's all kind of relevant and ties in together. What was that piece? Uh, it's called Disturbance. Um, I don't know. I don't know if it's anywhere online yet. <laughs> but what about your hosts for this bike tour? What did you ask to find out if somebody was well-suited to hosting? What kind of people hosted you, and what was the in-house experience like? Oh, it was eclectic. So in Vernon, I was. it was a night of like weird improvisation stuff. So... There was like this crazy weird punk band playing stuff. And then there was this really old uh, guitar player that's been like around playing crazy improvised stuff with like in like gadgets that he's made and stuff. And then there's some local guy named Bjorn Van Halen who plays drums and he organizes events. And so it was at like a record store in Vernon. And then in Kelowna, we were, I played after an open mic night in the lobby of the, it's like the main art center in Kelowna, which what's that called? The Rotary? What's it called? It's the Rotary Center there? Yeah, that's the one. So the Kelowna Rotary Center, I played in the lobby after an open mic night and, uh, I uh, got really along really well with the, like assistant director of that organization. She was really nice. And um, we were like surprisingly close network wise. I was working in a band that her husband had just hired them to do like a big thing at their uh, art gallery uh, type thing. And then in Princeton, I played at a Canada Day art gallery show 
with uh, another punk band with two punk bands so kind of the punk scene was uh, like uh, embracing me a little bit which was kind of weird and kind of neat uh and then also some organizations that had ties to like climate change uh goals and so the other place that i played in vernon uh we had partnered with the local uh ecological society to present the event um I guess my last question to wrap it all up is if somebody was listening and had an idea that's equally as wonderfully ambitious as your bike tour, what would you want them to know before they start to hear the people saying there's no way they could do it or it would never work? What is the thing that is most important to remember or tell yourself when you're trying to do something like that? Uh, You've got to get 80 like 90 no's to get 10 yeses like anything yeah you're gonna get 90 no's for 10 yeses but if you send out 10 emails or call 10 people one person is gonna uh like what you've got and that's the person you need to find the people that say no don't matter they don't care the people that say yes do and um, if you're trying to book gigs, the same thing's true. If you're trying to write grants, like, st- still the same thing. You're going to get a whole bunch of no- no's. You might get one yes, but that's the yes you need. Um, if you're booking gigs or a bike tour, like, a lot of people are going to... I had ever... I couldn't get anybody to come play with me because they're like, this is so dumb. Like, why are you going to do that? But eventually... Like, if I continue that practice, I I already have somebody who would be interested, sort of, but I'd have to find the proper funding and stuff. But I've only got one person that said yes in a couple years of asking around. But, yeah, you only need the one. And if I I need more, I just keep asking. (laughs) That's my... That's my word. (laughs) Well, if you ever need a host... I can definitely guarantee that. And if you want somebody to play bass with you, I can't guarantee that. But I can train. Thanks so much, Chris. That's a great place to wrap. I had a blast talking with you. Thank you so much. That was lots of fun. Thank you. If you like this podcast, subscribe to get more from wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you really like this kind of thing, visit rhythmchanges.ca and check out our music journalism serving Metro Vancouver, BC. To support what we do, visit patreon.com slash rhythmchanges or click the support button from our homepage. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. We'll catch you next time on the Rhythm Changes podcast. Rhythm Changes is a Chernoff Music production.